You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. With host, General David Grange. With co-host, Ranger Doug. Until we go down. Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 16th program in the Veterans Radio Art. Subject tonight is Russia moves into Ukraine and will consider such things as whole of government. How would the U.S. and others respond? Thank you, Ranger Doug. Tonight, with this program uh, focused on Ukraine, but really want to get into the whole of nation approach and why that's so important for the situation we're in with Ukraine right now for the United States. Uh, so our program tonight is the is whole nation approach and how increasingly it's relevant for a nation's problem sets due to the results of things like the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan and the effects on Central Asia and Southwest Asia that that caused. Russia's attack on Ukraine, as already mentioned. China's eye on Taiwan. Growing terrorist threats around the, the world and in some enclaves it's actually growing more than it did 20 years ago, as an example in Afghanistan. The uh, unprotected borders of our nation, secure supply chain issues, increasingly in severity of an issue uh, due to several factors, and these are just to name a few of our challenges for the United States of America. The whole of nation requires an understanding and an application of the elements of national power. And what is unique about the whole nation approach, as simple as it may seem, quite often it's ignored. And it's about combining these elements of power to create unity of effort to achieve desired effects for a nation's aim. Whole nation enables the principle of unity of command and also the principle of mass. Whole nation is also created by public-private partnerships between and through whole of government which includes government agencies at the federal, state, and local governments. It involves for-profit commercial organizations and non-profit organizations. Whole nation approach allows another principle of war, economy of force, to be applied within the right mix at the right time and at the right place. It is adaptable to the situation and the operating environment if used correctly. Whole nation is required to operate throughout the spectrum of conflict, the range of operations. With a whole nation approach, a nation can execute and achieve its desired aim. Whether it is crisis response, contingency operations, or large-scale operations, it can be a deterrent. It could be peace support operations. It could be information operations, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency foreign internal defense, low-intensity conflict, security cooperation. It does not matter. Whole nation requires an understanding and application of the physical domain, the organizational domain, and the moral domain. What I mean by that is that the physical domain is the size of one's military, types of weapons and equipment, our industrial base, training standards, etc. In the organizational domain, we're talking about joint commands, combined arms, Agency cooperation, force structure, 
And something that's very relevant today as you look at Ukraine and our ability to do anything is our self-sufficiency in the United States of America. We're talking about fuel. We're talking about rare earth elements. We're talking about critical therapeutics for medical support for our population. We're talking about border security. In the moral domain, those are things like fear, confidence, morale, trust, reliability, social media, and leadership. How are our leaders perceived by others, both allies and our enemies throughout the world? Our guest tonight will discuss whole a nation relating to situations in the past, the present, and over the next ridgeline. They have a wealth of knowledge. They understand how to apply whole of nation. They have experience around the world throughout the range of operations by land, by sea, and by air. Please join us tonight with our guests on the show tonight on this program, which may be extended, which will probably be extended to several shows, Dean Chang, John Fenzel, Doug Wise, Mark, and of course you, Ranger Doug. Back to you. We're fortunate tonight to have a good friend and a wonderful strategist, Mr. Gene Chang, with us tonight to discuss some aspects of the world situation. Tonight, we'll touch a bit on what's going on in Europe and possibly touch a little bit of what we might see in the Asian environment as well. Dean, how about giving us a short background on yourself, please? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. been there for a dozen years, and before that was with the Center for Naval Analysis and SAIC Corporation. Um, I like long walks on the beach and pina coladas. I could, I could meet you on the beach for a pina colada anytime, although it's uh, <laughs> below zero here. Well, Dean, as we see, there are a lot of things that are unrolling in the world right now, some that have been predicted and perhaps some that are not predicted. Uh, I think we've seen after the Olympics then, but events have, have taken a sort of a faster pace. What I'm noticing is there isn't anything set in stone for what Mr. Putin may be doing or what we're doing. In fact, it all seems to be very reactive. It almost goes back to what Vladimir Lenin said as far as probe with the bayonet, and if you detect strength, then do something else. But if you detect weakness, continue to probe. What are your thoughts on what you've seen so far this week? Well, I think uh, one of the things that honestly was a little surprising was given Russian habits over the last decade or so, um, they have actually made invading countries almost an Olympic sport. In 2008, they went into Georgia on the opening day of the Beijing Olympics, and during the 2014 Winter Olympics, which were held in Sochi, uh, they annexed Crimea. So <clears throat> I was actually one of those who was wondering whether Mr. Putin would continue this trend and go into Ukraine during the uh, Winter Olympics. Um, he didn't, but of course now we see him uh, recognizing the uh, breakaway republics of Lukansk and Donbass and moving in and leaving the U.S. and NATO really very befuddled. Do we intervene when it's not quite an invasion of what's left of Ukraine? Do we impose a full set of sanctions when so far he's limited himself to the occupied territories? Um, he really has put us on our back foot. I think that's a very good point. But I, I'm also intrigued by what you said about his uh, alacrity 
in conjunction with the Olympics. And it, it sort of says that he was basically said a thing we know about recently that you should wait until the Olympics are over before you do any of these things. Would you would you think that might be true? It might be. Um, but that would be intriguing because the Chinese didn't respond uh, to the much bigger event. Um, the 2008 Olympics was China's coming out party. In fact, in Asia, uh, hosting the Olympics for the first time is, in a sense, a mark of congratulations. You've moved to the next higher level. This is true for Japan in 1964, South Korea in 1988. So for the Russians to invade Georgia literally on the opening day of the 2008 Olympics would have been much more politically problematic. Um, so it's an interesting question. If she prevailed upon Putin to delay, why did she care and why did she uh, push the Russians uh, not to invade earlier? That being said, um, I think that a lot has been made of this uh, so-called warning um, to the Russians about uh, sovereignty and the like. I think that the Russian foreign minister's statement that Ukraine isn't really a country is very telling because that, of course, is the Chinese formulation about Taiwan, that it's not a country. Um, and so, in a sense, Russia seems to be almost offering a quid pro quo now to the Chinese. We don't think Ukraine's a country. We're going to invade. If you support us on this, then if you were to act against a not country like Taiwan, uh, we would support you. That's a very useful construct, and it's something that we should file away, I think. Uh, as we look at what's going on, it reminds me as if uh, Chicago were to occupy the rest of Cook County, though. In other words, something that one would have to expect. He's gone into Donetsk and Luhansk. But uh, would you say that his real objective would be to turn and take the land bridge between those areas and Crimea? Or does he have a bigger goal in mind, do you think? The story goes that Henry Kissinger at one point asked planners, if we had to use nuclear weapons to help defend Iran, this is before the Iranian Revolution, how many would you use and where would they go? And the initial plan was for something like 20 or 60 nuclear weapons and Kissinger's response was, are you people out of your minds? Uh, you know, this is Iran, this isn't World War III. Uh, to which they then came back with the answer of, well, we would drop two, at which point Kissinger then said, are you crazy? If we're going to use nuclear weapons, then you know, we need it to be decisive. I think this idea of a land bridge, or maybe he's just reinforcing these two breakaway republics, He's going to incur a fair amount of wrath. He's going to incur a fair amount of sanctions. Um, the Germans have already uh, you know, put a temporary hold on Nord Stream 2. Um, and does that really build Putin's reputation at home? Um, or is it more likely in for a penny, in for a pound? If I'm going to suffer... Uh, foreign uh, sanctions, if I'm going to be punished for my actions, then I might as well go for as many of the marbles as I can. And let's keep in mind that he did give this very interesting speech uh, within the last couple of days justifying the invasion where he made it clear it wasn't just about uh, Lukashenko, it wasn't just about Donetsk or Donbass. It was about Ukraine, that Ukraine has always been part of Russia and needs to be returned to Russia. And in fact, it was a horrible mistake to let it go. Uh, that says to me that um, he's likely to be aiming much, much bigger than just reinforcing the positions he already holds in the two breakaways. I think that's a really valid observation. And I would say that uh, 
as I mentioned earlier, it all has to do with that bayonet idea. His real aim, and does he find himself being appeased or opposed? And his behaviors are not necessarily predictable to the American mindset, I think. I believe he has a more Eastern mindset than we might embrace here in the United States. Would you agree? I think he has an imperial mindset. Um, I don't think he's trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Um, it doesn't look like, for example, he's all that interested in all of the various Central Asian republics. But instead, it's almost more of the greater Slavic empire. Um, he has, uh, apparently, he intends to stay in Belarus. Um, he's obviously talking about Ukraine. Uh, these are the core of the land of Rus. Um, and it seems like that's what he's trying to sort of establish is a revival. And of course, you know, he's also re helped rebuild the Russian Orthodox Church, um, mostly as a political tool. But uh, just as Stalin wrapped himself in Russian uh, sort of, of defender of the Russias, um, I think Putin is more <clears throat> in line with pushing a pan-Rus approach than a Soviet approach. And that's really sort of the imperial czarist mindset. I agree. My comment on Eastern, it's, it's just a slightly off uh, the Western mindset. In other words, we think Clausewitz, and I don't believe he really embraces that. Now, again, I don't necessarily think he's going east. He's obviously moving west. And yes, I'm fully aware of uh, the Kievan Rus. I was in a, a memorial for a friend who was one uh, who embraced that philosophy, and about uh, nine out of ten people there were of the same. And so I got a great lecture on the uh, on what that meant, and I realized that many Russians consider themselves to be mishabited Vikings or Varangians. So uh, <laughs> it's quite the interesting aspect. Do you think that he is also angling for some economic and political gains as far as status in the world? Absolutely. I think that one of the things that we, the West, uh, have probably overplayed is this whole Russia is weak, Russia is almost pathetic, and yeah, we'll let you into the big power club, but really it's a guest pass. And for somebody who is a Russian nationalist uh, who did serve the Soviet state, that has got to be hugely humiliating. And I think that there is absolutely a desire to reestablish you know, Moscow's place in the world, uh, a place at the table, uh, a country whose views matter, who has the ability to, at a minimum, play spoiler, but by reasserting control over Ukraine and over Belarus and with the demands that he and, and the Russian leadership have made, you, NATO has to withdraw from Eastern Europe. NATO needs to pull its forces out. That is great power diktat um, writ large, and I think that I mean, the, the strange part about this is he doesn't seem to have learned from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, we, what we have not seen under Putin is a massive investment in Russian infrastructure, uh, in reviving Russian industry, other than arms industries. Um, and so the more he, he commits resources to this, it's an interesting question. Where is he going to get the money? Uh, the materials, the industrial capacity to sustain this if this becomes either an open conflict or just a sustained Cold War where Russia is cut off from the international financial trans, uh, you know, networks. 
I think that's a great observation. I am of a belief that he has asked for more than he knows he will get, but by asking for as much as he has, he will get more than if he had asked for less. I think one of the things he would like to have is the recognition that Ukraine will not be invited nor welcomed to join NATO. What do you think of that? Oh, I think that that's absolutely dead on. Um, I think it's not just Ukraine, but Ukraine in particular, given its historical significance to Russia, given its physical location, given its sheer size, um, it joining NATO would definitely hurt any re- attempt to revive a greater Russia. But I think he also intends the same sort of thing for Georgia, uh, for any of the other Caucasus uh, republics. Um, and more importantly, I think that it sets the stage for demanding, whether he gets it or not is a separate issue, as you said, but demanding a reaccounting, if you will, of Eastern Europe's relationship with NATO, with the EU, and with Russia. Um, in a sense, this is old-fashioned sphere of influence politics. Um, yep. Ukraine and Belarus absolutely should be viewed as part of Russia in this view, but also Russia's concerns need to be addressed in Finland, uh, the Baltics, Poland, uh, arguably even Germany, um, so that Russia can be, quote-unquote, reassured. Great observation. So in the, we've mentioned China and G already. Do you think that there might be some kind of a sequel in the sense of uh, something we might see in relation to Taiwan starting soon that might use this as a sort of a distractor and that we end up with uh, two stimuli delivered, one at the top and one at the bottom of the world island, according to McKinder? I think that uh, this is a reasonable fear, um, in particular as the U.S. swings assets, intelligence, strategic lift, uh, heavy forces uh, to Europe um, to deter any Russian adventurism. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians can both count. They know how many squadrons, how many carrier battle groups, how many tank battalions we have. Um, they understand that a force can only be in one physical location at a time. That being said, I do think, however, that Beijing has its own timeline, and that timeline includes when the PLA is ready for a war that will, frankly, be for all the marbles from Beijing's perspective, uh, where if it loses, the CCP's grip on power is genuinely jeopardized, and if it wins, it is assured for a long time to come. The PLA says it won't be ready before roughly 2027. Uh, they talk about being fully mechanized, fully informationized, and now fully intelligenceized, um, meaning the forces are in you know armored personnel carriers, not walking and not in trucks. Uh, they have sensors, UAVs, uh, radars, electronic warfare, and electronic support measures, but also have integrated artificial intelligence, um, machine learning, all of these sorts of very advanced technologies into that same force. And they talk about that being done by about 2027. So I would say that certainly the, if, if Taiwan looked like it was about to be abandoned, they'd probably try and swoop in. But for the moment, given the difficulties of launching an invasion across 100 miles of some of the worst water in the world, uh, I suspect that they are going to put pressure on Taiwan, but not necessarily launch an invasion in the next 12 to 24 months. What would you think about the possibility of their trying to isolate Taiwan and uh, attempt to corral it in that regard? 
although not as, it is not contiguous to their territory, such as Hong Kong was. But what about an isolation-type operation where they simply attempt to uh, make it difficult for the world to deal with it and gradually try to strangle it? I think something like a cyber campaign, um, diplo-economic efforts to further isolate Taiwan, picking off uh, Taiwan's remaining diplomatic partners, I think at this point it has maybe 18, probably fewer. Yes. Um, all of those are absolutely part of the effort. In fact, I would say that one of the, the biggest targets is the Vatican. Uh, get the Vatican to switch, and you potentially get the remaining countries in Africa and Central and South America, many of which are heavily Catholic, to re-examine their positions. Um, but also, the Vatican is uh, the last outpost for Taiwan in Europe. Um, but a blockade on the one hand, it has relatively lower risk, but it is an act of war, and it, those take time. And in many ways, I suspect, the Chinese, as they're watching Ukraine, are going to be assessing how quickly does the West respond. The quicker the West responds, the more China is absolutely going to want to resolve the Taiwan issue even faster. Now, if we dither, um, the Chinese may well say, wow, we, we'll be given months to make a blockade work, and that's probably enough time to really hurt Taiwan. Um, but if uh, even there, the Chinese have to worry about the possibility of a fairly rapid American response. And I say American because unlike Ukraine, nobody else is likely to come help Taiwan, uh, with the possible exception of the Japanese. Um, so... If the U.S. is going to respond quickly, then China needs to win quickly. If we're going dither, they've got more options. We could discuss that as we watch things unroll in a future program, if you're available. But I certainly appreciate you tonight. There is just one last thing I would like to ask, and that is our country and others talk about whole of government as ways to deal with such situations. It's not just the military instrument that's important. Do you see any ways in which uh, the United States perhaps with partners and allies and alliances, uh, could take some action that might be effective in curtailing the situation? I think, unfortunately, um, whole of government at this point is aspirational at best. Um, we are divided as a country, um, and I have no doubt both Moscow and Beijing are exploiting that. Uh, we're not the only ones. Um, Canada seems to be remarkably divided. Uh, who, who would have expected that? Germany has a new government. Uh, the British government, or at least Boris Johnson, appears to be uh, in some amount of trouble. So getting democracies to work together is always a bit like herding cats, but uh, in today's environment, it's even harder. Uh, and we are opposed by two countries, Russia and China, who don't engage in whole of government. Uh, efforts. They engage in whole society efforts. Industry, religion, academia, media, all of these are, to a much greater extent, able to be coordinated and controlled by the central authorities. Um, are there things we can do? Uh, obviously, there are financial sanctions. Um, it is a good sign, I guess, that the Germans finally have at least put a temporary halt to Nord Stream 2. Uh, we are, of course, entering spring. Will they hold firm once we hit winter uh, and things get cold. Uh, it's interesting that the former Russian Prime Minister Medvedev said, uh, welcome to 2,000 euro 
per thousand cubic meter natural gas if Europe uh, doesn't play ball with Nord Stream 2. To give you a sense of what we're talking about here, um, gas, this natural gas this past winter cost $7 per thousand cubic meters. Uh, so we're, we're talking about a massive price hike and Medvedev is, is not even being subtle. So I don't know whether or not we can forge a coalition to face down Russia when we have such divergent interests. Well, a very fine concluding point. I want to thank you for joining us tonight, and I think your insights are precise and invaluable. And thank you very much for all you do. Thank you, Doug, for the opportunity to be here this evening. You're welcome, and uh, we'd like to have you again. Let's take a moment for a commercial break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Well, that was great. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 16th program, this one entitled Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Tonight, we're fortunate to have with us a great panel of guests, and let me introduce them. We have Mr. Douglas Wise, former CIA and former Army officer who has been with us before. Mark Mitchell, a former senior official in the U.S. government and a retired Army colonel as well. John Fenzel, a former senior official in the U.S. government as well as a retired Army colonel. And, of course, General Grange and myself, Ranger Doug, I don't need an introduction. Tonight, we're going to pose a number of questions to our guests, and we'll answer them in order. So we get a chance to take this thing at kind of a wave top level and describe how we got here and then where we may see us going in the future on the idea, though, that in war, many things can change. For example, Russians may have entered this with an idea of what they would accomplish, but now they've met the Ukrainians, and we may see things take a slightly different turn than was expected. All of that depends on the human factor and some other things. Doug, would you please introduce yourself? It's an honor to be here with this distinguished panel and certainly with the with uh, General Grange, to say the least, and this is an important way to get informed citizenry, so I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, as as uh, Ranger Doug said, I had a career in the U.S. military, and then I was detailed to CIA, where I spent 30 years as a, an operations officer recruiting spies, uh, mostly overseas. Uh, I then finished my CIA career by being uh, loaned out to the Defense Intelligence Agency, where I spent uh, two years. Uh, as the Deputy Director of DIA, and I retired in 2016. Thank you, Doug. Mark Mitchell, would you please introduce yourself? Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to join uh, this great panel. Um, a couple of these guys uh, are other distinguished guests who I had the privilege to serve with. Uh, John Fenzel was my first company commander in Special Forces. Uh, I retired as a uh, Special Forces colonel, and uh was uh, privileged then to go back and serve uh, in the Pentagon as the uh, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. Um, also uh, served at the White House on the National Security Council and uh, departed uh, government for good uh, back in uh, November of 2019. Uh, but like everybody else, uh, still remain passionate uh, about these critical national issues. I would also like to mention that Martin was the recipient of the Army's Distinguished Service Cross, which is our nation's second highest award for valor for actions in Afghanistan in the early part of the war. And again, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to introduce John Fenzel. Well, Ranger Doug, thanks so much. It's it's really just a privilege uh, to join you all. And, and Mark, uh, let me just correct you. I, I work for you. You didn't work for me. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, those are great times. And, you know, I, I, I had the privilege of... Uh, serving for about 30 years uh, as an Army Special Forces officer. I spent time across 5th and 10th Special Forces Group as well as the training um, group out of Camp McCall. I worked on the personal staffs of the Secretary of Defense and the Army Chief of Staff, and I was a uh, special assistant to the Vice President of the United States and also the Homeland Security Council director as well. I've, I've had, uh, I, you know, while I was in uniform, but also particularly afterwards, I, I've written several novels, one of which is starkly reminiscent of the current situation we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, I've, I've worked in the corporate arena now for the past uh, decade, and, uh, you know, the, the water's good on this side. So, thanks. 
have the great distinction of serving as a White House fellow for several years under both the Clinton and Bush administrations. He did a wonderful job. He was joined by his younger brother, who was a White House fellow at the same time. I had a chance mm-hmm. to visit both of them. A wonderful man and from a wonderful family. Thank you, John. I'd like to then take uh, the first question, and I will pose it to Doug, who can, because of his unique background, but also his brilliant sense of humor, enlighten us on what he thinks about the current situation. Doug, would you describe what you saw or thought in the run-up to the current situation uh, and touch on anything you wish? And if you think there are some issues outside the normal, why, feel free to voice them. Thank you very much, Doug. Yeah, thanks, uh, Ranger Doug, for the opportunity to provide a little perspective. Uh, I've been pretty active on Twitter, uh, providing my my running commentary on what I thought were the geopolitical, the strategic, as well as the tactical, you know, events that were unfolding in uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, I think many of us are sitting here thinking that, uh, and, and I'm not imputing this to any of the distinguished panel. But I think many across the world were like surprised. I mean, certainly the Ukrainians were that uh, that Putin uh, actually executed uh, an invasion, let alone full scale, you know, countrywide invasion. Uh, I think if you look back on what we saw, we just weren't listening. Putin was very clear in his messaging. There was no doubt in anybody's mind, which was why the U.S. intelligence community was was so accurate in their prediction and why the president chose to use the IC's products, you know, to help not only, you know, coalesce internal U.S. support for what he was about to do, as well as our allies and and message uh, Putin as well. But Putin was very clear with his demands and very clear with his statements. Uh, Quite frankly, Putin talked earlier, you know, some five years ago, about the breakup of the USSR, defined it as the world's biggest geopolitical tragedy. And this was not the first time that uh, Putin has made a comment about, you know, grieving still, emotionally wounded by by the breakup of his, you know, USSR. He has never gotten beyond that. He's never been able to move past that. And uh, he has acted in every way, in every corner of the earth, with every ally and with every adversary, with that in mind. He was very, very clear, uh, most recently, when he said that uh, Ukraine should not be a separate state. Ukraine, and again, it gets to the heart of his emotional attachment to this, to this issue, he said Ukraine has always been and always will be a part of Imperial Russia. And so he was not going to let his his family member leave the family and head to the West. He was adamantly and very, very dramatically opposed to NATO expansion in Eastern Europe. He claims that we were deceptive and that we betrayed him, you know, through several agreements. He wanted to return uh, NATO disposition back to the 1985 uh, situation. So he, he again, he, he just absolutely has to live in the past uh, so that he can create a future that mirrors the past. And it, it's quite fascinating indeed. And so he, he violently opposed uh, the Ukrainian move toward the West. And so, you know, as uh, President 
Zelensky was making his comments about still remaining loyal to NATO and uh, loyal to the West and wanting to be part of the, the EU, part of NATO and part of the Western alliance and the community of nations. It was just waving a red flag in front of, in front of Putin. Not that he needed that because the decision had already been made. And then, of course, as we all saw, you know, the separatist states were, uh, were recognized. Uh, no surprise there. I mean, these, these separatists have been active for, you know, four to five years, and Russian military units were already in those locations anyway. Uh, and so this was, again, part of the pretext, part of, part of his reason. And it was not to, to, to message the international community. This was to message the Russian people because he needed a, a, a an internal political uh, recognition that this, in fact, was going to be important because even Putin knew that the cost was going to be significant. And then we also saw uh, in the background of this, you saw, um, you know, where Putin had directed his, his Russian diplomats not to discuss anything or negotiate in good faith because he didn't want to underline, undermine the decision he already made. So that's well on the Putin side. Then if you look at what we saw on the ground, the disposition of forces were very clear. The composition of the forces were very clear. These were not forces that were defensive by any means. The positioning of them near to the border, uh, the disposition of, of air attack helicopters, long-range artillery, and missile systems, it, it was very clear. These forces were not deployed there just to send a message and to be symbolic. Putin had clearly directed these forces be disposed so that they could act immediately. We saw the war games unfold in Belarus, a co-belligerent to this. Uh, and we also saw uh, an, an increase in the, in the cyber attacks uh, directed against uh, infrastructure and in the financial infrastructure in particular and command and control infrastructure uh, of, of Ukraine. So there was no there was no lack of signatures. This should not have been a surprise to anybody. And I think in the end we were we were blinded by our own hopes. And the thing we always and I was an operations officer, so I wasn't an analyst. So I'm certainly not exactly analytic in my thinking, but. I think the biggest mistake we all make, uh, whether it's inside the United States or whether it's amongst our allies, is we want to look at Putin, we want to look at Russia through the lens of U.S. decision-making and the U.S. core values and U.S. morality, and Putin doesn't abide by any of that. He's got his own frame of reference, his own lack of, of moral frame of reference, and so we were actually blinded by our hope and by the fact that, you know, if we were Vladimir Putin, we would not be coming up with the same risk versus gain calculus that he ultimately came up with. Drawing upon something that uh, that uh, General Grange mentioned in his opening remarks, which I think is absolutely spectacularly important, uh, one of the tremendous advantages that the Russians have is it's only the Russians. Yeah, a little bit by the Belarusians, but for the most part, it's the Russians. Tremendous political, economic, such as it is, and military and decision-making unity. 
with Russia. They don't have to engage with anybody. And so they have a tremendous advantage. And the only way we can gain any kind of parity with that is, as General General Green said, the, the whole nation approach. You know, our government needs to show unity. Our political parties need to eliminate the boundaries. And our citizens need to understand this is not the time to show political divisions or score political victories. Russia is unified. We have to be unified. And it's not only critical just so that we can get, as General Green said, U.S. unity of effort, but it's also, and maybe even more important, that we show our allies that we are one people, one goal, and and that and, and, it, and there's strength in that. And we also want to show our adversaries that we're unified, we're strong, we're the America of old, we are the superpower, we have the most powerful military in the history of the human race, we have the most well-trained women and men in the military, and in the end, I guess we need to show ourselves that we are unified and that we are strong and we are Americans, we're not different kinds of Americans ethnically, politically, socioeconomically, which is the only way we're going we're gonna to prevail in this existential crisis because democracy is at risk. So, Range Duck, I'm sorry for uh, talking so long, but uh, that's my initial thoughts. I think that was brilliant. Thank you, Doug, for that insight. I don't think you were uh, extended at all. I think you covered everything that uh, you need to think about. And tonight we're, we're trying to stay at kind of the wave top level because we really don't know where this will go. And as Mike Tyson and several others will say, the Moltke's no plan survives first contact with the enemy. I'd like then to introduce Mark Mitchell to provide some insights on the same question. Mark, over to you. Thanks, uh, Ranger Doug, and uh, thanks to Doug Wise for some uh, very insightful comments. You know, there are a couple of things that um, I that stood out in his comments and that I want to uh, follow up on. In the run-up to this, we've seen a, a great deal of, you know, from the perspective of a lot of people in the world, uh, plausible ambiguity. And even though many, you know, the intelligence community in the United States and many in the defense and intelligence community who were following us closely saw very clearly what was going on at the strategic level, there was a, a, a successful creation of plausible ambiguity and misdirection uh, by Putin and Russia that led to a, a strategic uh, indecision on behalf uh, particularly of NATO. And Mr. Putin has seen over the last 14 years at least that NATO has lacked resolve uh, when it comes to these European issues. Uh, whether it was uh, Georgia and uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia um, or the the Donbass and eastern Ukraine, the seizure of Crimea, NATO did not respond militarily to any of those, and their political um, response was less than effective. And as Doug mentioned, uh, Putin has factored all of this into his decision-making, which is drastically different than ours. It's a 
uh, it's been a common strategic flaw, in my humble opinion, of the United States that we have a tendency to mirror image our adversaries and rather than looking uh, at the world through their eyes. And that plus a lot of uh, domestic political division, not only here in the United States, but in Europe, um, led senior leaders to grasp at the slimmest straws for, you know, for holding out hope that maybe it wouldn't happen. Um, you know, again, for those of us paying close attention, saw through the pretextual justifications and, and recognize all the preparations uh, for what they were. I, I do want to say that, you know, We've talked uh, about whole nation thanks to, you know, General Grange's great instruction. Doug mentioned this. Um, but when it comes to NATO, it's whole of nation times 29 uh, for each of the members. And that has proven very difficult to achieve that unity of purpose, um, even if we could achieve it domestically, um, aside from the fact that Russia being used as a domestic political wedge, uh, over the last six, seven years, um, we would still have challenges with our, our NATO allies. And uh, just the one, you know, issue that I would bring up is uh, Putin's cultivation of a strategic relationship with President Erdogan in Turkey and Turkey's recent, you know, just this last day, the uh, Turkish foreign minister prevaricating and saying, well, we're not, you know, not calling it an invasion and being unwilling to restrict uh, Russian warships passage through the Dardanelles. And so it's a challenge to get NATO to act uh, because whole nation uh, affects not only us here in the United States, but all these other countries. Thank you very much, Mark. Then over to John Fenzo. John? Yeah, you know, um, I tell you, I, I completely agree with both Doug and, and Mark in their assessments, you know, and as, as I saw all this developing, um, not just here in the last week or two, but um, far in advance. I mean, this 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 has been happening for for months now, and uh, you know, so as invasions go, I don't think this was a surprise for anyone who was who was watching closely. Um, and uh, and if it was a surprise to our government, I don't think it was because I th I think that uh, Langley had uh, it was posting all, all their intelligence kind of in the run up to this um, that they had developed and uh, and it was it was right on target and I think to an extent it was effective um, in showing our capabilities and also in an effort to to really try to um, to get Moscow um, to restrain themselves but they didn't and so I just don't think it was a surprise for any of us it was a highly scripted and event that was planned well in advance um, and even um, Vladimir Putin's excuses were predictable as well because uh, we, we've heard them all before and uh, late last year Putin began deploying um, heavy concentrations of Russian troops close to Ukraine's borders and in fact um, at the end um, he really kind of um, they were he had Russian forces all over um, Ukraine all around them um, surrounding them and then early this week he scrapped the 2015 peace deal the Minsk II Accords um, for the east and the recognized areas that were under rebel control and uh, declared them as independent so my other thought was that this was um, 
Moscow's opening salvo for potentially a, a much larger effort. So looking at this in isolation of other potential paths, I believe, is, is a very unwise course. And um, it, it, no matter how you look at this, this is a very dangerous time for Europe. So as, as much as this was a predictable uh, event, my enduring thought is we should really take a step back and listen to those lessons of history and uh, and and consider our responses uh, through those lenses as well. Because, you know, this is the first time since World War II that a major power has invaded a, a European country. And the, the big question now is whether or not we're going to see uh, that, that old Iron Curtain closing down Russia from the rest of the civilized world. So those are my quick thoughts as, as I saw this developing. Thank you, John. That was a great round, and we'll have more. What I wanted to do to uh, capitalize on what was said in our interview with uh, Dean Chang, one of the things that he mentioned was that Putin appears to be more of an imperialist than anything else, working to unite the Rus, the Kivan Rus. And if you study the history of those, they're kind of uh, kind of a Viking group, but at the same time, we have uh, Vikings heading into France and then ultimately with William the Conqueror moving into England, there are others that move down the Volga and end up in Russia. And they end up in Belarus, the capital of which is Minsk, and in Ukraine, uh, modern Ukraine, the capital of which is Kiev or Kiev, and in Russia, which of course the capital currently is Moscow. And that appears to be the core of what he may be developing, but it may go beyond that. We also, as we consider our whole of nation, have to think about the Russian whole of nation and what that may mean, as well as what the Ukrainian whole of nation may mean. The thing that I'm reminded of by the comment Mark made about the mirror imaging and the thing that we did ourselves in Afghanistan attempting them in Iraq, attempting to mirror image ourselves on those cultures, Sun Tzu has an adage which is very important, and that is know your enemy and know yourself. Or know your opposition and know yourself, and you need not fear the outcome of a thousand battles, meaning if you act carefully, understand your own capabilities, strengths and weaknesses, and also those of your enemy or opposition, then you can actually win. And the other thing that Sun Tzu also tells us is to defeat the enemy without fighting is the acme of skill. In other words, the highest order of skill is to be able to organize everything so that you win before you have to fight. Let's pause a moment for a commercial. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, bringing you shows like Wounded But Not Broken, Roll Call, and Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nife.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nife.org, and click on VDAC. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. 
The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Welcome back. Here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Your little boy ain't gonna die. Your little boy ain't gonna die. Welcome back from the commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, our 16th program entitled Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We have with us a wonderful panel, and now we'll move to question number two. So I'd like to pose this question to Mark Mitchell. So now that the war is underway, what do you believe might be war aims of Russia and, of course, Mr. Putin? the leader of that country. Over to you, Mark. Thanks, Ranger Doug. So I'll start out real quickly and kind of go from the from the tactical level up to the uh, strategic and political. Uh, obviously, their first major objective is to secure the major cities and the critical infrastructure, uh, including military bases, airports, energy infrastructure, etc. I, I think at the um, that is proving harder than uh, I think the Russian forces had initially anticipated, um, which is is frankly not surprising um, given just the nature of conflict. And as you mentioned in your as uh, General Grange, I think mentioned in open comments that you know. Um, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, to, to quote Mike Tyson. And I think the Ukrainian forces have at least, um, uh, in many cases, uh, managed to deliver that punch, uh, even if they're not successful uh, in the long run. And that leads to the next phase of this. At the operational level, um, the Russians are going to seek to eliminate that coherent resistance from the Ukrainian armed forces and to establish uh, a population control over the civilian population, uh, particularly to include the media. And I think we can look for, um, you know, in the future, see some blackouts um, as the Russians try and control the messaging and what's going on there um, in within Ukraine. And at the you know, strategic level, they're going to obviously, I think, you're going to install a, a compliant puppet government uh, to do their bidding and to, you know, to request that integration uh, with Mother Russia. I think they're going to do everything they can to avoid triggering a NATO military response, which is frankly relatively easy at this point. Um, and they're going to mitigate the effects of these sanctions while, while trying to keep uh, – NATO and the EU and other opponents uh, divided, and 
and that gives them time and space to solidify their control. Uh, on the political front, uh, Putin is going to have to maintain domestic political control long enough for the annexation of Ukraine to become an accepted fact. And while he's probably not in uh, in danger of any coup or anything like that, it does seem that there are Russian citizens that oppose this. And uh, again, I think Putin has factored in these costs into his decision making and is ready to accept them. And there's really, I personally, I don't think the any sanctions are going to dissuade him and cause him to withdraw. And the only thing at this point that would cause a, um, a Russian withdrawal from Ukraine seems to be a a a military response from the from the West, which is not does not seem to be forthcoming. So uh I think we're rapidly approaching the point where it's a, a fait accompli. Thank you for that, Mark. Appreciate it very much. I would like to then pass the floor to John Fenzel. Over to you, John. Thanks, Ranger Doug. You know, um, I, I completely agree with everything that Mark just mentioned, you know, and but so I won't repeat that. You know, beyond the the annexation of Ukraine, I think uh, Putin has two main overarching goals. His first goal is something that he views as part of his legacy, and that's really just to restore the former grandeur of, of the Soviet Union. You know, I was um, in when I was in the National War College back in 2007. Our uh, our trip that we went on was to to Ukraine, and when we were in Kiev, we had the opportunity to meet a lot of different diplomats that. Were were in uh, in Kiev and and I can remember you know, I was talking to a Danish diplomat um, at one of the embassies there and and uh, he told me a story of when uh, he was stationed um, in Moscow he attended an event that Vladimir Putin was speaking to and the event and the attendees were KGB alumnus and veterans <laughs> and in uh, in that speech he said we're back. Together we will restore the union. To thunderous applause, and uh, and he said that really made um, uh, a significant impression on him at the time, and uh, it was so significant that he repeated it to me. So that I think is his first overarching goal. His second goal, I believe, is to disrupt and discredit, and if possible, um, to dismantle NATO. Um, and these these are mutually reinforcing. They're they're not exclusive. We could talk a little bit about that later, but so if his goal is to restore the Soviet Union, we can expect um, that ultimately this this isn't going to stop here at Ukraine's borders. Um, ultimately, he could go after Poland and the Baltic states next. The difference there, and it's a crucial distinction, is that those are NATO countries. Um, the Baltics joined NATO in, in 2004, and I think Poland before that. If, if we fail to defend those countries as part of um, the Article 5 Collective Defense Charter that requires NATO will be discredited and ultimately would collapse. So is, this is something that is really existential if you take a few steps back and, and take a look at this. Um, and if you look at Ukraine in isolation, we do so at great peril. Thank you, John. That was a great observation. I would like to uh, just follow up on the comments with the idea that I think it's possible that Mr. Putin may have made an error or two and that may have mirror-imaged a little bit on what he saw us do in Iraq and Afghanistan and assumed he could use many of the same methods to take over in Ukraine. Problem being, 
when we went to Afghanistan and Iraq, there wasn't the, the cultural animosity, and we left the population alone pretty much, such that some actually did welcome us as we expected they would. But I believe that the enmity between Russia and Ukraine is such that having gone in quickly, it may be that Putin finds out that the punch in the face also works against him. And I think that there may be the possibility that the losses that mount in Ukraine may be unacceptable eventually to the Russians. Remember, they lost quite a few people in Chechnya, which led to Putin's accession earlier. But I think also uh, there is a report that hasn't been confirmed that the Ukrainian Air Force has actually generated what we call an ace in a day. There is a Ukrainian pilot that reportedly has shot down six superior Russian aircraft, and there may be more of these. It could very well be that the Russians have found that uh, some Ukrainian combatants are actually quite proficient in what they do, decided to move in and perhaps go further than the original plan. In other words, if his objective was to secure a land bridge between uh, Luhansk and Donetsk and Crimea, instead he decided to go after the whole country. Attacking the whole country is one thing, because you would have to do that in order to paralyze command and control, logistic structures and such. But if your real objective was to attack and then uh, by some means deceive your enemy as to what you were going to do, pulling back to just occupying the bridge that allows you to drive all the way across a new slice of Russia between those places I named. Instead, he's attacked and perhaps will try to secure the whole country, and I think that has a cost beyond what the Russians may have uh, expected. So we'll have to watch and see whether that develops. So we'll move to the third question, which I'll pose to John Fenzel. What do you believe, and I know you're expert in, in the area, uh, are the war aims of Ukraine? Over to you, John. Uh, that's a great question. You know, uh, you know, when you are getting punched in the face, it's it's kind of hard to think about your war aims. <laughs> but you know, now that the invasion is is underway, I think Kiev's interest is to escalate the conflict as much as possible. And that that seems a bit counterintuitive. But you know, what they what their interest now is is now that they have been invaded, is for any for any of their defeats to remain at the tacit level and hopefully um, allow them to achieve a strategic victory. And, you know, case in point, I just read that, that Sean Penn um, is in Kiev right now. I don't think that's an accident. He's doing a documentary on the on the invasion there, and he's he's part of uh, Zelensky's crew there. Um, so I think uh, another aim of, of Ukraine is to get the, the West to speed up um, the uh, rearmament of, of Ukraine. And beyond that, Ukraine can only really hope to – to turn Putin into um, a, a pariah by exposing him as this ruthless dictator. And, uh, and you'll hear them draw out all of the World War II parallels, which I think actually are pretty accurate, um, ensuring that uh, Moscow is hit with uh, the, the most massive financial costs that, they can, that can be delivered and also delivering the Ukrainian people against Moscow wholesale. Um, that, that's going to be difficult, obviously, given the east-west divide there. but. Um, but primarily, I think what this will do is, is harden any of those who were um, on the fence um, to never give in to, to Russian demands. Thank you, John. That was very wonderful. I appreciate everything that you said. And we'll uh, move then to Doug for a follow-up. Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Ranger Doug. I appreciate it. Uh, I think what my colleagues have said has been pretty clear. Putin's in it for the long term. This is not just a special military operation. 
this is the first phase of a decades-long geopolitical and military campaign plan. This is all about Imperial Soviet Union, not just Imperial Russia. So he's in it for the long term, which means we need to be unified for the long term, which is going to be extremely difficult going into a number of election cycles. But if we hope to match his unity with our unity, we've got to commit for the long term and change as a nation, change our political culture as a nation if we want to be able to deal with this. This is just an opening salvo. Uh, who knows what the next domino is? Uh, I think it's going to be the Baltic countries. Recognize that uh, that's a different calculus for him because those are, A, uh, NATO signatories, plus they all have U.S. troops in it, so it's going to be a lot more difficult. And so I suspect that the Russian intelligence services will be the tool he will go to to get the political change that he needs to get it to appear to be more in indigenous and domestic than he will be by Russian tanks and Russian uh, glickums and, and atacums and things like that. Uh, it was very clear that the, he doesn't intend to just punish uh, Ukraine. You know, as my colleague said, you know, this is all about gaining control of Ukraine. Uh, yeah, he wants to message the other Eastern European countries who might be thinking along even more democratic and more Western uh, belief sets. And he obviously, as has already been mentioned, you know, create disunity in, in NATO and EU. But he's going to establish a puppet government. And, and he's going to do that to govern Ukraine. Ukraine will never be the Ukraine that we knew. It'll be the new Ukraine. It'll be the new normal. will be a puppet government in there. And the Russian military will be in there for the long term, I will bet, only because they've got to guarantee that this puppet government survives not only birth, but puberty, and its teenage years as well. And so it would be very difficult, and this is going to be very expensive for Russia, because I think they're about ready to settle into a long counterinsurgency campaign, because that's where the Ukrainian strength is going to lie. Uh, I'd be willing to bet. I'm not as skilled in that, in that, in that d discipline as my colleagues are, but the reality is. I think it's interesting to note that uh, I would have expected the Russians to come in to Ukraine the way that they came into Berlin, you know, in 1945, you know, where it was just unimaginable barbarism. And I think the uh, the reason why is, uh, one, if they abused the population and if they totally destroyed the infrastructure, their puppet government would not have an easily docile population, nor would it have any of the phys physical tools and facilities to govern. You know, if the new puppet government had to replace the entire water distribution, electrical distribution, all of the buildings, all of the uh, technocracy and all the bureaucracy of government. And so I think the Russians struggled a bit because they couldn't act in the way that their reptilian impulses would normally drive them to just barbarism and wanton destruction, mirroring on the ground with military power. You know, Putin's emotional desire to, to punish and own and chasten uh, our, our Ukrainian heroes. And so I think it's, it, it then leads me to, to, con to actually answer your question, which is what are, the, what are the aims 
of Ukraine, and I think they can't have any aims to believe they can survive as a nation. Could they possibly have a government exile? Yes, probably will. Uh, I think their goal is going to be to keep the, the spirit of a democratic and free Ukraine alive and to serve as, as an inspiration and maybe a beacon of hope for the other European nations uh, to show resolve and strength and, and, and be resilient in the face of what is going to be a decades-long uh, political, economic, military, paramilitary, and asymmetric assault on all of the former client states of the Soviet Union. And I believe that uh, Russia would probably go after more traditional Western European nations as well because he can't leave democracy alive and well, you know, and let's face it, Putin doesn't fear the NATO military capability. What he's fear, what he's been phobic about is the spread of democracy on his frontier. That is the thing, because as both of my colleagues said, you know, it's all about power. It's all about being, you can't be a despot if your country is going through a democratic transition. So he's got to keep a political buffer between Moscow and the Russian people and, and, the, and the spirit and seeds of democracy. And the only way he could do that is with barbaric, wanton mili imposition of military power. Over to you. Thank you, Doug. I just wanted to clarify a couple of abbreviations that you used. You mentioned Glickum and Atakums. Those refer to truck-mounted or vehicle-mounted precision-guided weapon systems, missiles, actually ground launch cruise missile, which was one we had that we gave up during an, uh, a treaty that we concluded with the Soviets, and also the ATACMS, which is a current system that we field, which is precision-guided multiple launch missiles from a track vehicle. Would that be correct, Doug? Yeah. I, if for me, unlike my colleagues, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on Russian uh, military systems, but, you know, fundamentally, they, uh, they, they brought the most sophisticated weapon systems they had. Uh, to the fight, uh, both those who were extremely long-range, like cruise missiles, as well as those that were close-range. And, of course, as we all saw, they they weren't just about air superiority. They're about air dominance. And, you know, I, I really uh, am amazed by the courage and the skill of that uh, Ukrainian ace. Um, and I hope there's more of them uh, that are there, and I hope their weapon systems and airplanes survive. But, yeah, it's the sophisticated of the, of the Russian military capabilities. They brought their best here. And then I, I guess I could just you know, bloviate a little more by just saying the Russian military we're seeing, unlike the United States military, literally was in combat 60 seconds ago. The Russian military, with the exception of a little bit of terrorist plinking in Syria, the Russian military had never, ever been in military engagement, you know, in the last, since World War II, actually. And so we're now going to see, in the future, the imposition of military power and the execution of military power that's far more professional, far more capable, far more experienced. They'll have refined their command and control. They'll have refined, they'll have eliminated the shortcomings in their weapon systems. And, uh, and so this is going to be a different Russian military that we're going to face in the future than our Ukrainian brothers and sisters are now facing on the battlefield in Ukraine. Thank you, Doug. Mark Mitchell, over to you. 
Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, great comments uh, by Doug Wise I, and uh, John Fenzel. I want to reiterate uh, a couple of things that I think um, are, are pertinent here. You know, the Ukrainians, they know the Russians. They were part of the Soviet Union uh, for, you know, decades. And they're not completely unfamiliar with the Russian tactics, techniques, and procedures, and they've benefited now from you know, a couple decades of close partnership uh, with NATO members in terms of their military training, and certainly here in the United States. Um, and I think they are going to seek, and we're seeing it already, they're going to seek to maximize the cost to the Russians, uh, you know, for the invade, invasion, and they're going to do that, um, you know, right now, through their using every tool at their disposal, and you know, should they be defeated militarily on the battlefield, I, I think we can expect to see a, a long-running uh, resistance campaign of, of sabotage and and particularly uh, destabilization of any Russian puppet government. Uh, we know from our own uh, experiences in the United States with counterinsurgency, whether in Vietnam, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, that it's much easier to overthrow a uh, an existing government than it is to stand up a new government and uh, insulate it from the destabilization that comes through you know, sabotage and resistance. And I think the, in particular, uh, the, uh, Putin and his, uh, team are going to have a hard time finding enough collaborators within the core of, uh, of Ukraine. Uh, of course, in the, in the Donbass and the eastern regions, they had a very, um, pliant, Russian minority there that was willing to work with them. Uh, but the closer you get to Kiev, um, the harder it's going to get for them to find people who are willing to co uh, to cooperate with that puppet government. And I think it's going to lead to, uh, as I'm not sure if it was uh, John or Doug mentioned, you know, a long-term uh, insurgency uh, on behalf of the Ukrainians. And, you know, it may take 10, may take 20 years, um, but I think what they've shown just in the first uh, several days is that they have a real fighting spirit. And uh, that will, that's not going to be easily extinguished. I just want to go back to, to our, one of, one of the areas where we never seem to really mirror image uh, was in our uh, understanding of how um, our opponents would act uh, in re in relationship to our our military power, and we talked about shock and awe at the beginning of the Iraq war. The Iraqi army did not fold, and we would not fold um, if subject to a shock and awe campaign. And we're seeing it right now. The Ukrainians are not folding, and they're going to continue to fight, um, even if the uh, president is, you know, would be taken out. Somebody else will step up. And, and that's an area where I think, it, you know, there's, there is some hope, long-term hope for the Ukrainians, but it's going to, it's probably going to come uh, at a cost of decades of pain. Back to you. Thank you, Mark, for that observation. Doug, I believe you have a point to make. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you very much for allowing me. I, I thought it was great comments by Mark. The, uh, 
and I'm really out on a limb here because I'm going to expose my counterinsurgency ignorance. But, but to the best of my knowledge, the, the most the most effective counterinsurgencies and the ones that have survived are the the insurgencies that have survived are those that have safe haven. Where's safe haven? In NATO countries. So I think it's going to be fascinating indeed when uh, the Russians are subject to one of the most intense insurgencies that we've ever seen in modern times. And it all goes back to the characterization that Mark made about, you know, the commitment to passion, to patriotism, and the courage uh, of, of our Ukrainian sisters and brothers. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that those insurgents are going to need some safe havening, and, and those safe havens are going to be in where? Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Moldova. Um, and so it'll be interesting what, to see what, A, the NATO countries do when they have active insurgents inside their frontier, and, B, what the, what the Russians are going to do in order to neutralize that threat, because I don't think they're going to stand by and just let. But at the same time, uh, I think uh, we're, we're going to see just some extraordinary uh, follow-up by by Ukraine, Ukrainian in, inside Ukraine as well as exiles, and I, I think this is going to be, you know, this is this is changing the complexion of Europe forever. Uh, I think because of this. Back to you. Sir. Thank you, Doug. I would uh, conclude this question session by the idea that I believe that uh, actually what you said and, and I've said earlier is going to happen. This is evokes a situation similar to Northern Ireland, where uh, populaces that appear to be genealogically similar end up interacting with one another, and it's impossible to tell the enemy from the friend. But the enemy knows who you are because where you are and what uniform you wear. And I believe the Ukrainians have a plan in their warring to exact a terrible price. And that price doesn't need to be as high as it was in World War II. It needs to be only as much as caused the Russian people to decide that staying throughout the expanse of Ukraine is too costly and that they withdraw to the bridge that they really want. I think that, as I mentioned in the conversation with Dean Chang, the idea that Vladimir Lenin coined the idea that when you attack, probe with the bayonet, and if you meet resistance, you can turn or you can withdraw and probe elsewhere. This is one of these things where I believe the Russians have borrowed a method we use to take over Iraq and Afghanistan and even fight the Gulf War One, the shock and off campaign, which is designed to decapitate a modern state and get inside and begin to run things, installing the puppet government and all of that. But you leave the populace alone. And then the populace can turn on you in seconds because they don't want the puppet government. They don't want the Russians. They understand that they may be related by being from that same gross population I mentioned earlier. But they have a very proud history, and they remember the depredations that the Soviets raised against them when they were the Ukrainians back in the 30s and 40s. And that memory is is not gone. It hasn't been assuaged by anything the Russians have done since. Nothing Putin has done has endeared him to the average Ukrainian person, other than those that are the Russian speakers that the Soviets homogenized throughout the Soviet Union. And so I'm reminded of a movie I've seen, which I recommend to everyone, Come and See, which is about how the Belarusians reacted to the Nazis in World War II. It's brutal. And it was actually filmed in Belarus, not even involving professional actors. It was so long after the war, it was amazing. People could actually recreate those scenes, but they did. And it's magnificent. 
I think that's what we may see unfold inside Ukraine, and I believe that may be one of the Ukrainian war aims, is to make it so costly for the Russians. They simply, as they did in Afghanistan, as they did in Chechnya in the first go-around, they simply decide to withdraw until they can figure out what else to do. The other thing I'm reminded of is that Mr. Putin has a lifespan, and I wonder if uh, the war aim has uh, an ability to exceed his lifespan. We'll have to see. But those were brilliant comments, and we need to pause now for a station break and a commercial. Thank you very much. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to our 16th program at Veterans Radio R2.0. This is our program 
Russia moves into Ukraine. And uh, somewhere down the road, we may have to have a program that says the Russians move out of Ukraine, but that's yet to be seen. Our fourth question goes back to Doug Wise. And this gets to General Grange's point earlier about whole of government, understanding that we have a whole of government. All the other nations involved, including Russia and Ukraine, have a whole of government. What could be done by partners and allies, including NATO, the EU, and the U.S., etc., to change the complexion of the conflict? Where are you done? Richard, Doug, thanks. uh, I'm a little reluctant to answer the question because I've talked so much (laughs) during this panel session. But, uh, you know, I'll I'll tell you what, I'm not sure I I have an answer to that question, and it's only because of the fact that there's so many moving parts on our side, so many pieces to the puzzle in comparison to just one moving part and one piece of the Russian puzzle. And so, you know, all of the, you know, national aims, national fears, national objectives all throughout the EU and NATO, you know, will affect. And, and I think it was, Mark Mitchell may have said that or maybe John Fenzel did. I can't remember. But the reality is it, 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 we're going to have to work at the unity the Russians already possess it. And so working as hard as we can to keep our European allies focused on the collective priorities rather than their national priorities is what's going to be important because the Russians are are not going to just rest on this accomplishment. One, uh, it's just a special military operation in Putin's mind, but it's part of a broader decades-long campaign plan to really destroy democracy in Europe. First, along the frontier, and then, I think, secondly, throughout Western Europe. And he's got the power and the majesty to do that. He's got the unity. He has no rules. Uh, The Russians are reptilian. They're barbarian. Great culture, a lot of arts, none of that is playing any role in in the decision-making that Putin is is making uh, in these geopolitical decisions. But I think the United States of America has got to, like all leaders do, has, has to set the example. Because if we don't, nobody's going to line up behind an America that is divided, an America that is, you know, internally destroying itself. They're not going to gain any confidence. We are the global superpower. We are the leadership of the non-Russian world. Except in China, of course, which is a whole different podcast, I would imagine. But the reality is we've got to get our stuff together. As General Grain said, we've got to show unity. We've got to draw upon our common core values in the face of what is an existential threat to not only democracy in Europe, but democracy worldwide, our way of life. Because if we end up disintegrating because of our internal divisions, and because of the fact that we can't demonstrate and show and inspire unity with our allies and fear in our enemies, then I guarantee a Russia is going to win in the in the east, and China's going to win in the west. And so we are going to have a tough time. This is going to be the determination whether America survives as a, as a nation, as a country, as a society. And I, I know I sound like a, you know, a doomsday sayer, but the reality is, uh, this is the first chink and the first 
serious existential exploitation of the inherent weaknesses in democracies. And democracies, as we all know, are beautiful. The freedom is absolutely inspiring and wonderful. But there are some disadvantages. Disunity is quite allowed and quite prevalent and is very healthy under normal circumstances. But the reality is, as General Green said, we've got to act like one nation, one country, one people, because if we don't, our allies won't, and our enemies won't fear us. So back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Doug. That's a great observation, and appreciate your discussion of PRC China as well. We'll talk about that at the end of the program, because I think it does play a big part in this as well. But uh, thank you for inserting that. Over to you, Mark. Thanks, Doug Wise, for those uh, really insightful remarks. Uh, I was taking all kinds of notes here, and I think this is the leadership challenge of of a generation, uh, probably of the 21st century for us right now. Um, as bad as 9-11 was, al-Qaeda did not pose the kind of existential threat to Western democracy, both here in the United States and in Europe, that a nuclear-armed uh, and revanchist Russia poses. And that's the, the real challenge is can our, our leaders find the wherewithal and the courage to do what they need to to unite Euro Europeans, unite Americans in a common cause to to um, confront this this danger before it metastasizes into something that we cannot um, cannot counter. And I would just offer uh, last thought here. You know that the the 9/11 Commission uh, faulted a lack of imagination, and too many of us. Uh, have, you know, in the 90s, after the you know the end of history, um, cannot imagine a world where we are no longer, where the United States is no longer the dominant global power, where we don't have a um, democratic partners in Europe, and I think the the challenge is now for our leaders to to supply that imagination and make people realize what is really at stake here. Um, and like I said, this is a, a chink in the armor that could be exploited uh, tremendously. And so um, it is a, a leadership challenge unlike any uh, that I've seen in my lifetime. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I would uh, just like to insert that I believe, as I said, uh, this probing with the bayonet idea and uh, the rapidity with which they've surged in, in, I think they may have underestimated their Ukrainian foe and that now all the wonderful digital capabilities and everything else, you know, notwithstanding, they have to integrate the puppet government that Doug described. I would be willing to bet that we can become very surprised in the end about how long it all lasts. I think this is an area that's very used to that and it's something that we may not understand, but... Uh, Let's wait and see while we watch the film come and see. Thank you. So we'll move now to the last question, and I will ask Mark to lead the discussion there. What do you think we can look forward to in the coming weeks? And if you have any further thoughts on some peripheral issues or anything else, feel free to integrate those as well, Mark. Over to you. 
Thanks, Ranger Doug. Fortunately, I anticipate uh, at least in the very near term, a continuation of what we've seen over the last several months, last several years, frankly, as these crises have continued. We will hear lots of uh, tough talk from Washington and Brussels, but there will be a, a continued lack of resolve, um, at least initially, on behalf of of NATO. I mean, just today we had the NATO um, or the German uh, senior German officer describe their army as standing bare and, and you know, warning that if they would be asked to uh, operate militarily, that they would be uh, very limited. And I think this is part of a longer term trend within NATO um, that multiple presidents have addressed in different ways that uh, many of our NATO partners are not living up to their uh, their treaty commitments. And, uh, you know, and of course, the worst of those, I think, has been uh, uh, Turkey flirting with uh, their purchase of the Russian missiles and the, their relationship uh, with Putin. So I think in the coming weeks, we're going to see some of that um, continued uh, lack of resolve. I hope that the resolve will harden, uh, but it's not going to take place uh, nearly as, as quickly uh, as I would like. Um, but I maintain hope that uh, they will see the better uh, the better angels of our nature will recognize the necessity for both the national and international unity to contribute, you know, confront this. And I would just, again, touch on China, like, like Putin and many of our adversaries, does not suffer from a, a, a lack of unity of effort. Um, it's very easy in those, uh, in those types of nations to get that unity. It's very difficult. Uh, on the democracy side, but we've shown time and time again that democracies, when threatened, um, can respond much better. And uh, I maintain uh, uh, hope that that will prove true again. Back to you. Thank you, Mark. Okay, John Fenzel, over to you. Well, thanks, Ranger Doug. You know, I, I think actually this is probably the, the most important question um, that we're asking ourselves tonight, but also it's the same question that's dominating the, all the late night discussions in the White House Situation Room. You know, what can be done? And, and this is really where you go back to um, General Grange's points about the whole of nation. It's why it's so crucial, um, and it's why it requires such a unified approach. Um, uh, you know, just managing our alliances, um, any coalitions that develop as a result of this. It's extraordinarily important, and uh, and I, I totally agree with both Mark and Doug. You know, this is where leadership matters, and without it, we're lost. And in fact, in the long term, you know, everything that we've worked for in the last nearly 250 years is lost. Um, it's really that simple. Uh, we we are either going to follow, you know, the example of of what we uh, of what. Are you know the greatest generation did during World War II, or we're going to fail? And um, and so, what can be done? You know, I think you know, as far as tactical levels, maybe kind of t uh, operational measures that could be taken. Stop buying Russian oil and gas. 
It's easier to say now that the that the winter in Europe is coming to an end, uh, but that would be the first thing. That's really the the first way to 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 hurt Moscow um, front and center. Um, we can, uh, you know, I, I would say also, um, you know, we can talk about intelligence all day long, sharing intelligence. We did a great job with that. We we, we demonstrated that we knew what their intent was uh, from the outset. But that really only has limited value. And, and you know, at this point, um, my belief is, is that we should really begin reinforcing Poland in the Baltic states in a pretty aggressive way, um, begin prepositioning and actually repositioning uh, the equipment in Europe and for those of us who participated in these uh, back in the day, possibly begin the reforger exercises again, not only in Germany, but across across Europe. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that we can do. I mean, um, as a tactical thing, you know, the, the whole um, SWIFT payment system that, you know, that it's really the, the, the messaging system that banks use to make cross-border payments, and it's really the kind of the principal mechanism for financing international trade. That can be um, – Russia could be cut off from that, and Great Britain and from the Baltic states have advocated for that. Um, but there's a flip side to that coin, and that's that um, it could hurt our economy and the European economies. There are workarounds that the Russians could apply. And so um, whether or not that will be done is an open is an open question. But it really kind of gets to the whole kind of dime concept, you know, applying diplomatic, informational, military, economic measures, um, and and not just sanctions. And uh, and whenever I hear we're applying sanctions, well, we do that all the time. And so I, I think that there's, you, you really have to kind of look at this in a, in a kind of whole of nation synchronized way as you go. The other piece that I would say is that we should start looking at uh, arming uh, Ukraine's resistance, Stinger missiles, counter-drone rifles, mines, um, anti-tank missiles, small arms ammunition, you know, and, and I would imagine that there's talk right now about 10th Special Forces Group having a role if not in Ukraine, then on its borders, training and equipping in those in those uh, those safe areas that Doug mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of things that we can do right now that um, that you know that we we should really be discussing in a serious way. Thank you, John. That was that was great. And I have to say that uh, all of us on this program tonight are friends of friends, acquaintances, and or friends. But uh, after tonight, obviously, we'll be favorite colleagues. I would like to say that idea of whole of government and the fact that Ukraine is not a NATO ally seem to perplex a lot of people. But there are things that we as our government, uh, our whole of government, whole of nation can do to support the Ukrainians. They would include such things as information and intelligence, logistical support, other capabilities that don't involve us getting directly involved with the uh, combat itself, but that might actually if the situation protracts a bit, allow the Ukrainians to put on a more effective resistance and create the situation where it costs so much that the Russian people simply demand that they come home. This could actually provide us the opportunity to recover from uh, a disadvantage some sense from our departure from Afghanistan. It's always difficult when you're out on the field yourself trying to do things, but if you can capably support someone else who is fighting and they do a good job of it, the benefits can come back to you in multiple ways. And, of course, we have a, a very healthy and large Ukrainian population here in the United States. In fact, uh, a very favorite commander of mine, Vladimir Sobachevsky, was a, a Ukrainian-Russian 
and uh, was a very patriotic American, served about 48 years in the Army and did time in CIA and everything else. But uh, he was very fierce in his defense of uh, his uh, ideas and, and of his family. And uh, we're alive today. I know he would want to go back there and do what he could to help the fight. But often after his service time was done, he was out supporting people in the former Soviet republics, learning things like intelligence and logistics and other things. So there's a lot we can do with a whole government without actually getting involved in this, and it may be very beneficial for the Ukrainians as they find their way through this conflict. It may also be very detrimental to Mr. Putin. Let's pause for a commercial. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Roses are red. Violets are blue. You want your disability claim? Get VDAC. End of story. Go to nifv.org. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from that commercial. You're joining us on Veterans Radio R 2.0, program number 16. Our topic tonight is Russia moves into Ukraine. I'd like to pass the floor to John Fenzel. John, over to you. Thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. You know, what can we look forward to? And, you know, initially, you know, I think that we can expect a lot of at least overt military restraint on the part of the West um, it's what we do, <laughs> you know, but why? And, it, it, and that's really the question. N you know, NATO can't deploy to, re to Ukraine because that would precipitate, of course, um, um, a, a, an escalation of this war and um, possibly a third world war. So this is a balancing act. Um, but, but the key to keep in mind here is that, you know, restraint does have its limits, too. And as for R Russia, I think we're going to see a continued full-blown military offensive to, to occupy Ukraine. They, they aren't going to stop until it's complete and they've achieved all of their objectives there. I think it's going to be a protracted conflict, as um, my colleagues have mentioned. Um, 
overall, I think we're going to see an escalation of hybrid war against NATO countries. As we escalate, they will escalate. We're going to see uh, cyber attacks that are going to be uh, possibly interfering with our electrical grid, gas refining capabilities, among others. Um, you know, there's the possibility that uh, they could knock out our GPS, our communications and surveillance satellites, so we're effectively deaf, blind, and, and lost. Um, we could see terrorist attacks. We could see assassinations abroad, uh, Russia exacting retribution wherever they see fit and settling scores while uh, all of the major powers are distracted. So I think there's a lot that um, that could happen in the coming weeks, especially um, as these discussions take place at 10 Downing and also um, at, the, at the White House. And you know, nobody, I, you know, anybody who says they know what's going, you know, how this is going to, to turn out um, is really uninformed. We all are. And, and I think it's really just a function of, uh, of deciding and, and anticipating what could happen and then trying to mitigate uh, those actions as best we can. Thank you, John. Appreciate your observation. Doug Wise, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Freeze, Doug. Uh, in answer to your question on, on what's I agree with John Fentel, nobody knows. Uh, Nobody knew what was going to happen 48 hours ago, but we now know. We have pretty, you know, better clarity. So I think he's absolutely right. Anybody that thinks they can apply human intellect or AIML to this to prediction is just going to be doomed to failure because it's just going to take its own path, multiple paths, actually. I think to answer your question in Ukraine, as John Fenzel said, you're going to see a massive military effort to consolidate the gains that they that they acquired uh, during during the invasion during the war. And I think, as we all have talked about at length in this podcast, that they're going to be facing a, a brutal insurgency. They're going to be facing an insurgency that's going to be literally universal throughout the country, and it's going to not only be attacks on the uh, Russian military, but on their little puppet government. And I think, uh, I can't remember whether it was Mark that said, good luck on finding some officials that are willing to be the uh, the patent of uh, of Ukraine. Uh, I think it's going to be difficult because, the, you know, their their families are, are going to be highly at risk as, as well as themselves. So I think what you're going to see is a brutal, barbaric, overwhelming, no rules, Nothing left off the table response to this insurgency. The Russians are going to have no choice. They got it. They they got to be extremely brutal. You know they're going to end up doing reprisals. They're going to end up leveling an entire building to get one guy. They're going to just destroy neighborhoods, villages, cities. It's going to be just overwhelmingly difficult for the West to sit and watch. So what that's going to do is going to create a humanitarian affairs crisis that I don't think we've seen since World War II. And it's not going to be really safe because the Russians may not accommodate, you know, the UN, NATO, and the EU's desire to, to provide humanitarian assistance to the innocent Ukrainian citizens. So I think inside Ukraine, that's what you're going to see. I think strategically outside of Ukraine, you're going to see Putin investing heavily in disuniting uh, NATO, the EU, and internal to the United States. It's going to be extraordinary disinformation campaigns uh, in in U.S., in Europe, to 
to divide us uh, as nations, divide us as peoples, divide us as societies. The disinformation campaign is going to be just extraordinary because that's the best bang for the buck that Putin's going to get. Uh, John Fentzel mentioned about cyber attacks against financial institutions and infrastructure, and it's going to be uh, pretty painful, I think. And, and the Russians are best in class at, at these cyber attacks, not just because they're just great technically, but they have no rules, and they don't have a – you know, a, a very complicated coordination and decision-making system uh, like we do for these cyber attacks because cyber attacks, obviously, you're unleashing something. In the end, you have no control over. But we've already destroyed their economy, so it's not like they're going to suffer a lot of cyber blowback by their own malware. But it's going to be – there's going to be uh, consistent global uh, Russian cyber attacks against governments and, and against financial institutions. And I think – Equally importantly, you're going to see a drumbeat of threats that are going to come out of Putin. I mean, I think there was one, but I don't know whether it's credible, where he said, I intend to kill the families of Ukrainian soldiers who stand up to the Russian army. Uh, whether that's real or whether that's something that somebody made up, in the end, it's credible. I mean, it is real. It's the way he's thinking now. And so he's going to threaten, and we're going to look at like like the uh, head of the Russian space program, who said uh, we're we're just going to drop the uh, you know International Space Station, and it and it doesn't overfly Russia, so we're not a threat. It's going to land in China, the U.S., Western Europe. You know, it's going to be this massive thing. So I mean, and I think you know, I certainly did, and I'm sure others just sat there, kind of shake our head ruefully and go, this is so irrational and so puerile, but it's real. And it's credible, and it's the way the Russians think. And so the Russians have no rules. The, the Russian intelligence services, again, best in class in terms of irrational lethality. These guys are going to be assassinating. They're going to be using traditional weapons. They're going to be using Novichok, which they've used very effectively all over the world. There's going to be the strong beat of threats. It's going to be not only to punish and there will be action not only to punish previous behavior by nation states, but to preempt future behaviors by nation states. You can only imagine where all of a sudden we want to put another brigade in. We'll say, I, I'm just making this up. We want to put an American infantry brigade in Moldova. And all of a sudden the Russians go, um, we'll kill every third person in the Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs. If you guys allow, if you guys make the decision to allow that American brigade to be deployed, so these are the kinds of, of coarse, crass, just you know, mass destruction kind of weapons that the Russians will use to again contribute to disunity, to be cause confusion and chaos, to prevent governments from acting in in concert with 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 our desire to have a unity of effort, unity of purpose. And so the Russians will use all of their cultural tools to just continue create chaos, fear, apprehension, and to prevent us from acting as an international community. And it will be divide and conquer. And there will be brutality, barbarism, and there will be casualties and 
attacks internal to nations that I, I think are going to be very hard for us to deal with, but we're going to have to deal with it. Back to you, sir. Thank you, Doug. Well, this concludes our round of questions and answers tonight, and it's been a wonderful opportunity to explore the perspectives both for the region but also for the experience of our panel, uh, a number of very distinguished guests. Doug Wise, a senior intelligence fellow. Mark Mitchell, senior interagency fellow, senior army officer, also recipient of the Distinguished Service Cross for actions in Afghanistan. John Fenzel, a former White House fellow, retired Army colonel, but also an assistant to Secretary Rumsfeld and to Chief of Staff General Ray Odierno. Uh, this panel would not be possible without the connections between us, and I have to thank you all for joining us. I wanted to make a couple of observations about what we've discussed tonight, and they would be simply this. This is at the extreme beginning of the beginning. We really don't know where this will go. There's a lot here that uh, may influence the coming decades. Also could peter out rather rapidly if the Russians find themselves opposed and have to withdraw. One can't say, but the indications are it's going to last a while. So things to look for would be how do the Ukrainians organize their resistance? How effective is the resistance? How is the resistance enabled by any partners or allies? And then ultimately, what is the stock of the Russian people on this kind of thing? Were they behind this? Is the Russian, if you will, interagency or the, the, the whole of the Russian government really behind this? Or is this, as some say, something that Mr. Putin wanted to do and it may be based on something he has going on himself? And uh, as some of the things we seem to have done over the years may have become sort of a vanity type of thing. So we'll have to watch and see. And I want to say to each of our guests, again, thank you. But I would also, since we have a few moments, ask you for any observations that you might wish to make. And I'll start with uh, John Fenzel. Anything you'd like to say about the greater world situation, China and so forth, as we close? John, over to you. Ranger Doug, I, I don't have a lot to say, you know, because like everybody else, I'm just a spectator here. But um, I will say this, you know, we're, we're facing a very dangerous time, not only in Europe, but also globally, because while we are distracted, can't take our eye off the ball with regard to China and Taiwan, that could easily be exploited. There's any number of other bad actors that could take advantage of this whole situation as well. So I think that uh, this is a time for leadership. Um, it's a time where we should all be acting together um, in a unified way as much as possible. And, and if we don't, I think that we're going to find that the second and third order effects, even the first order effects, uh, could be pretty disastrous. So thanks very much for having me. This has been a, a real privilege to, to be with, with all of you. And, um, and uh, like, like all of you as well, I'll be anxious to see how this turns out. Thank you. Thank you, John. Doug, over to you. Well, yeah, I want to say this has been an exceptional privilege as, as, as well. I, it's just a privilege to be on the panel with my distinguished colleagues uh, and be able to just be part of the journey here trying to figure out what's going to happen. And I also want to say, uh, before I actually answer your question, 
that that really thanks to to you and to General Grange for creating this platform. You know, giving veterans a, a voice. You know, particularly the voiceless veterans to showcase. You know, their their sacrifices and their heroism and and their suffering too. So I think, you know, this is a great podcast. And and as a veteran myself, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, I think to answer your question on, uh, you know, what's the rest of the world? Well, our allies and our adversaries know that the United States of America is under great stress, both extraterritorially, externally, as well as internally. And I think uh, just as was already mentioned, I think uh, our allies will, will wonder whether we have the resolve and the strength to, to endure, and our adversaries will do everything they possibly can to exploit what's happening and that, that, that stress. Whether it's China, whether it's the DPRK, whether it's Iran, and, and yes, even our terrorist adversaries, there'll be no end of bad actors and malactors who will want to exploit what fissures, what weaknesses, what stress-induced manifestations that that'll that'll happen in the United States. So I, I think that's one of the things that, that we're just going to have to pay attention to as best as we can. Again, anyway, anyway, Ranger Doug, uh, General Grange, it's it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Mark, over to you. Thanks, Ranger Doug. I will echo, echo Doug Wise's um, comments that uh, I'm extraordinarily grateful to you and General Grange uh, for putting this podcast together and uh, for allowing me the privilege of uh, joining my distinguished colleagues here and discuss this really important issue. Uh, I just add only briefly that it's important that all of us uh, maintain a a long-term and big-picture perspective on this. It's very easy to get caught into, you know, details of the tactical, like what should we do this week or next week? But in the long term, we should remember that none of us wants to live in a world dominated by the Communist Party of China and a Putin-esque Russia and it's our role as, as citizens of free nations to be willing to do what's necessary to to avoid that. And to the extent that people think it's not possible, um, I think they're uh, being naive and uh, and actually creating more risk. So I urge all of my uh, fellow citizens, our veterans out there, anybody that cares about the the future that we're going to bequeath to our children, to stay focused on the big picture here and remember that n none of us wants our children to live in that kind of world. Back to you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, those were great observations, and all of you, I really appreciate your concluding comments. I would like to echo Doug and others who have said we have to think about the fact that we all on this panel tonight are decades past our active service. But in our country, as well as in many others, history even shows us that veterans, people who are long past their service time, are, are a source of physical, moral, and intellectual strength. You can take an example of Cincinnatus from ancient Rome. You can also take an example from Leonidas of ancient Greece who led the Greek 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. There are things we can do as a veterans community that actually are very supportive of our society, and perspectives like shared on this program tonight may actually reach the younger, many of whom I'm in communication with right now, members of my family and friends who haven't had a chance to think these thoughts. But I also believe that it's possible, given the time that we're in right now, 
We may be surprised to see the birthing of several others that we regard eventually if we're able to live long enough as our newest, greatest generations. And that's the thing that we commit ourselves to on this podcast, informing people so that folks can take knowledge from others and, and season it into their own experiences and move on to become better than what they've seen in the past. So once again, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for listening to the Veterans Radio R2.0, our 16th podcast, our 16th program, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening tonight. This has been our 16th program. We talked tonight about Russia moving into Ukraine. We had a team of extreme professionals. We had Doug Wise, the former deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and a retired senior intelligence service person. We had Mark Mitchell, who served not only as a colonel of special forces, but in the interagency and served for a time as the assistant secretary of defense for special operations and low-intensity conflict. And we had John Fenzel, a retired Army colonel who was also an assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, to the Secretary of Defense, and to the Chief of Staff of the Army, as well as being a White House fellow. We also, in the beginning, were charged by General Grange with treating the issue of whole of nation and whole of government, which we did. There's a lot that we in the United States can do regarding whole of nation and whole of government activities. The problem is the border and the country that's being fought over at this time lies far to the west of our NATO environment. So most of what we can do is support by proxy at this point. But there are certain things that our panelists talked about that we need to do internally to our own country so that we can result in a more unified situation going forward, not only because of the current crisis, but this is probably the first of a number that we will see put forward to us by adversaries that we already identify. This brings us to a consideration of things like the draft. That is a whole-of-nation activity. As it is now, individuals are caused to register for selective service, but there has not been a draft in years. And, in fact, during the draft, we found ourselves with, in many cases, very good soldiers as long as the cause was something shared by the nation and recognized as something that we really needed to do. It was in the national interest. And then, of course, during Vietnam, it turned out to be one of those things that created a great deal of division in the country. So while the draft is something out there, we're not yet ready to entertain it, nor is the situation to the point where we feel that anything but the volunteer force is what we need to work with. Discussions of the draft certainly lie in the future. As we conclude this program, we know that this is the first of a series, and we will try to touch this issue, Russia moving into Ukraine, in succeeding programs, possibly for a segment or perhaps even for a whole program, depending on the situation. We want to thank you for joining us tonight. We want to thank our panelists, and as always, wish the best to our veterans, our service people, and to the American citizens. This is Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN.